My wife and I have three kids. We have uh, uh, Christopher, who's 18, and Nick, who is 16, and Abigail, who is 13. And um, you may know um, our oldest, Christopher, when he was about 21 months old, he got very, very sick. He was diagnosed with um, a rare kidney disease. Uh, even to this day, 16 years later, they still don't know what causes it, and there's still known, uh, no known cure for it, but they've experimented over the years with different ways to treat it. And um, so for 16 years, we've kind of been battling this thing um, off and on and, and had some good years and had some tough years. And a little over a year ago, if you're here, you might remember, um, we uh, kind of were getting to the end of things. Um, just physically, he was getting worse and worse. His kidney function was um, really beginning to shut down. We uh, heard from our doctor about an experimental treatment that was being uh, tried with a few patients at the time. And um, so we uh, contacted our in, our insurance company and explained to them what we wanted to do. And they said, sure, we'll cover that. And so, you know, we went to our doctor and said, hey, uh, we talked to the insurance company on the phone and they said they'd do it. And our doctor was like, really? Um, okay, let's do it. And, you know, we went to the hospital and they're like, huh, all right, well, no questions. Let's just do it. And so we, uh, it involved a a day-long therapy, an IV infusion. And so we took him in and got the first IV and um, his condition continued to deteriorate over the course of a couple more weeks. And um, he kind of got to the point there at the end where he was, his body, because of his kidneys weren't functioning, he was retaining about 26, 27 pounds of water. And his body was getting pretty severe. And then uh, we took him in for just kind of a last ditch effort for another treatment. And he responded immediately, like, you know, within 24 hours in a big way to that treatment. That, that was 13 months ago. He completely got off medication. He had been in remission for uh, 13 months. We'd never really experienced, he'd never experienced 13 months of great health like that. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw some signs and were concerned and noticed that his kidney function was deteriorating again. Um, called our doctor. Here's, here's part of the backstory that made it so difficult for us. <laughs> our, our insurance company gave us a pre-authorization over the phone. They're, they're crazy expensive treatments as experimental treatments often are, way beyond our means to pay for. Um, and after we got both the treatments and he was doing well, we got a letter from our insurance company saying upon further uh, review, they decided that the treatment was considered investigational and therefore they wouldn't cover any of it. So we were kind of sitting there after the treatment. Now he's, so, you know, as a parent, it's like, hey, our son is doing awesome, <laughs> but what could we sell that would possibly pay for this and not have us living on the street? And so we were kind of looking at the bill, not sure what to do. So we kind of tried to get some advice and talked to the insurance company and they turned us down again. So we went ahead and paid our portion of what the bill would have been our copay and stuff and decided to hold on and see what happened. And behind the scenes, the hospital and the insurance company apparently duked it out. And eventually, and we don't know all the details and many of you were praying and um, somehow uh, the portion we paid was enough and the bill just kind of went away. And so we were pretty excited about that. As you can imagine, the, the little worrisome part was if he ever needed another treatment, which we knew he probably would, um, the insurance company now had made things extremely clear where they stood. They would not pay for it. And the hospital made it clear there's no admittance um, until, you know, we have a way to pay for it. So, you know, as a dad, as a provider for the family, when his kidney condition started deteriorating a couple weeks ago, of course, 
Um, I immediately started thinking about that and, you know, what will we do and how will we make that happen? And, um, and quite frankly, I couldn't figure out a way in my own to make it happen. We talked to our doctor and he said, well, you know, we can always ask. We should just ask the insurance company and who knows, you know, maybe they'll have a change of heart and they'll pay for it. So we, um, he, he f- sent in a request for treatment. Um, Actually, I didn't find out until yesterday that the request that he sent in actually had no documentation, history, or anything because they didn't have time to put that together. So in the, uh, they sent that off, and then they created a, a second appeal because they knew it would be turned down, and they, they put all the documentation into that. Sent the first one off. We were told we'd hear from the insurance company in answer. And uh, so I went on um, Facebook and I just mentioned, uh, for those of you who are on Facebook, I put on there that we, we really could use some prayer for what was going on. And, and some of you wrote on there that you would be praying and then more of you did and then hundreds of you did. And, and then many of you said, you've got your networks praying and pretty soon it was thousands. And um, yet I don't know how in the end how many were praying, but thousands and thousands of people were praying for the situation. And we just kind of figured, you know, if God can move a mountain, maybe he can move regions. We weren't sure. So we were all praying. And then um, we uh, were supposed to hear on Thursday if, you know, if it was approved or turned down. And um, so you know how it is. It's like our, you know, our doctor told us, it doesn't hurt to ask, but there's no way they're going to approve it. They're just not going to. And um, so we got a call from the hospital. And so, you know, I answered the phone and they said, uh, we'll, we'll call back in about an hour. <laughs> so I'm like, well, why did you call? You know, you know, you know, I'm not really a patient person. So I'm like, what? So I decided I'm going to go mow the lawn and just get my, and you know, I'm going to, so I'm out mowing the lawn and all I can really think about is, you know, as a dad, what am I going to do? What am I going to do when they say no and I can't figure out a way to pay for those treatments and we don't have any other options? And of course, my mind's just racing and the phone rings. And, um, and by the way, I learned I, just really good advice. If you're calling somebody and they are hanging on a thread on your answer, don't say hi. Don't say, how's it going? Don't say, how's the weather? Just say what our doctor said. I have good news. Um, and when he said, well, I picked up the phone. I just said, hello. And on the other end, I heard, we have good news. And I was like, that's all I needed to hear. And he said, you know, they've approved it and I cannot explain it, but they've approved it. It's nuts. We didn't even have any documentation, but they approved it. So, um, so here's the thing you need to, yeah. And uh, took him in yesterday uh, to OHSU to Dornbeckers and um, received his treatment. And um, actually, we were really uh, amazed. They released him um, late last night. And so he's at home sleeping. And we're kind of waiting now to uh, see what happens there, see if he'll have to go in for another um, treatment or if this one will work for him. But here's the reason I mentioned it, not just because I wanted to say thank you, which, by the way, I did. Really appreciate your prayers. But... um, you know, uh, obviously, it, for me on Facebook, and I feel silly talking about Facebook, but um, I've got a lot of friends and, and family who are my friends on Facebook, and they're not believers. They're not followers of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in God. They don't believe in the Bible. They don't believe in salvation through Christ, any of that stuff. So it got really interesting in my network when all of you started saying you're praying and God can do great things and God can move mountains and God can move regions and God can do this and that. And I had, you know, I, I knew the whole time I'm like, wow, well, this is going to be really interesting. And I, I even had a few 
people in my network who aren't believers writing me and going, you know, you have a lot of weird friends and, you know, they sound like religious nuts and kind of some of that stuff. Just, you know, some of that. And then I went to the, you know, my Facebook and I wrote approved and you guys started writing and I, I knew immediately it was going to be super awkward for my non-Christian friends <laughs> to read about all of that. And, you know, sometimes um, when, sometimes the things that we do are not just about us. Sometimes the things that happen in our lives and sometimes the things that we pray about are not just about us. Sometimes the things that we pray and the things that God does in our life are about other people too, about people who are watching, about people who are listening, about people who are wondering about Christianity and about Jesus and about, about God. And I ask you that because... I could have never known when I was putting this series together back in the beginning of September that on this weekend when I'd preach this passage, this would be going on in our life. But, but God knew, and we're talking today about a church that prayed an interesting prayer in the midst of a difficult situation. Um, and I would just ask you, I mean, the question I originally, originally wanted to ask you was, um, what kind of things do you pray about? If you were to look at the things, I mean, week in and week out that you, that you pray about in your life, what are the kind of things that are on your list? And I only say it because I know some of the things that you pray about because they're the same things that I pray about. And my goal this morning isn't to be offensive. And, and if, I'm, if it sounds like I'm being harsh, then I'm probably just being harsh on myself. But I, I'm guessing you probably pray about some of the things I pray about. And some of the things I pray about are, well, you know, I mean, I pray about my needs and, and I pray about my finances and my family and my schedule. And I pray about my responsibilities like you probably do. And if I have people in my life that are sick, I pray about them. And, and then I, I was, but I was thinking a few weeks ago, and then some of the stuff I pray about is just like, I don't know. It's just kind of menial, if that's a good word, you know, not, it's not like stuff that makes God sit up on the edge of his seat, you know, lean over from heaven and go, whoa. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, like anybody ever here pray, you know, when you're going to drive somewhere like God, I just, you know, pray that you'll Keep me safe as I drive. Now, I know if you live where I live, you can't go anywhere without driving down E Street, which is actually pretty scary, or Highway 14. So, but you know, I mean, I, sometimes when I get in my car and I pray, God, you know, I just pray you'll, get, you'll keep me safe. And I just like, I wonder if God's in heaven going, well, okay, let's see. Put your seatbelt on, don't drive Mach 5, and uh, don't text, okay? And you'll probably be okay. You've got 25 airbags in the car, and I think, you know, you'll be. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a good prayer. I'm not saying you shouldn't pray it. I'm just, I just doubt that it taxes God. I doubt that God's like going, oh, well, you know, to the angels, hey, everybody, hold on, because Bob's about to drive down E Street, and have you seen what it looks like right now? It's nuts. It's only one lane each way, and there's a, oh, you know what I'm talking about. So it's like, not like, or like, you know, if you ever pray, God, I got to take a test, and I pray you'll help me on my test, and I know, again, don't get me wrong, but there's like all sorts of atheists who they don't pray for their tests, and they get A's on their test, and I wonder if God ever looks down and goes, well, you might try studying, you know, <laughs> that, might, that might work, or if you've ever done what I've done, so I admit I've done it. But if you've ever been watching a professional sporting event on TV and prayed about it, so I confess I have. Oh, Lord, just one more touchdown and I'll never ask you for anything again, you know, or just let it be. A, and here's the bad news, by the way. Every team I pray for loses, so it's never like a good thing. But it just, when you think, when I think about some of the things I pray about or, um, 
You know, do you ever pray like, oh Lord, just like menial prayers, like there's no real passion or connection. Like we can do that with meals after a while, can't we? Instead of like sitting down to a meal and really being truly thankful for the meal, we're just like, God, we thank you for this food we're about to receive and pray you'll bless it to our bodies. Like it's some kind of dangerous thing. Like we're gonna eat a McRib and we really do need God's intervention, you know, so that we know, or God, I'm about to eat this, you know, this mayonnaise that's been sitting out in the sun all day. So I just like, you know, work a miracle or, or, you know, when we pray, like you ever tell your kids, did you pray your prayers? You know, did you pray the prayers tonight? Did you pray what you prayed last night, night before? Did you pray the student's prayer, right? You know, the student's prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, that's one less test I have to take, right? Do you ever pray like that and God's up and, you know, but do you ever, and I was just thinking like, I'm not saying don't pray that stuff because God cares about all the stuff going on in our life and we should talk to him. But what about like the big prayers, the, the crazy prayers, the, 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 the bold prayers for God and his glory and the kingdom and, and what's happening. And, and, and my concern is that when, when a church is filled with people who are small prayers about, about stuff that's just, a, just stuff that um, benefits them directly or indirectly, after a while a church can turn very inward and our prayers are just about us and our thoughts are just about us and, and what we do here after a while is just about us. And, you know, it's just about just, I want the sermons I like and the songs I like and the programs I like and, you know, the, 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 the seating that I like. And I just want stuff that's comfortable and, and tame. And yet when we look back at this first church, there was nothing comfortable about that church, nothing tame about that church, nothing civilized about that church. But see, I know this about you. If you're here this morning, you want to be part of something bigger than just you. And you want to be part of something bigger than even just this. And today's passage is about a church. It's about really the first church and the first recorded prayer of this first church. And it's a big prayer. And it reflects, I think, the bigness of God and the boldness of what God's doing in the world. Now, you remember, we're, we're studying in this book of Acts. We're going through it passage by passage. And we, we've talked a little bit about the author whose name was Luke. And it, it starts right after the resurrection of Jesus. And he appears to the disciples. And then he ascends to heaven. He gives them kind of the, the, the great commission. And he ascends to heaven. And then they wait around for 10 days praying. Remember, we talked about all this. And then, and then the Holy Spirit comes. And there's this, all this weird stuff going on. And, you know, there's... There's fire from heaven, right? And speaking in tongues. And Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to Christ. And the story that was related to us on the stage this morning takes place in chapter 3. One day Peter and John are going to the temple area, a big compound around the temple to, to pray. And um, all the Jews did this. They would go and you would get into the temple area through one of several gates. And so they're going there. They're going to pray. Peter and John are like the official or unofficial, if you will, um, leaders of the church at this point in time. And so they're going to go and, and they're going to pray. And they see a guy as they're going into the temple area to pray who's begging. And we're told a few things about this guy. We're told that he was, that he was lame. So, um, so I was reminded like this week that, that kids today don't know what that means. Um, so I had somebody say, well, does that mean he was a dork? You know, he was, he was lame. And I'm like, no, that meant he can't walk. And they were like, oh, that's weird. And yeah, and I, so I don't mean he was like fashion challenged, okay? He couldn't, he couldn't walk. He was, he was lame. And <laughs> even, even now when I say it, it sounds funny. But he was so, and he was about 40 years old and he had, he'd been born that way. 
He was born lame. And so it says that people would carry him to the gate. So now 40 years, he's kind of worked his way into the prime spot. And, and when Jews would come to worship, it was customary that they would bring somebody with them because it was considered a great act of worship to help somebody in need. So this is the place to be if you're in Jerusalem and, and you have to beg. So he's at this gate and as people would come in, they would give him money and he's been there many years. So chances are every Jew who comes to the temple in Jerusalem to worship knows this guy. They probably don't just know his, his face. They know his, his name. I don't know what his name was. I've been calling him Ed and I don't know why. But so there's Ed and he's there and people would be like, hey, Ed, how's it going? And they give him some money and they knew him. So on this day, Peter and John are walking by and undoubtedly they know him and they've seen him before and they're walking by and they just, they don't have any money. And so Peter's like, sorry, dude. And he's walking up. And then all of a sudden something happens in him. So if you read the text in the Greek, it's suggests that it wasn't, in, it wasn't his idea. God stirs inside of Peter, hey, you ain't got no money, but you got something good. So he says, he turns around and he says to Ed, you know what, Ed? I don't have any money, but hey, man, let's stand up. And he reaches down and Ed stands up and immediately he's standing and then he starts jumping around and he's leaping and he goes in one instant from being a sitter to a stander. This is like his new vocation now. And he's he grabs on to Peter and John and they're like, well, we got to go into the temple area to pray. And they're walking and he's holding on and they get into the temple area. And so there's going to be, ton, you know, probably thousands of Jews there to pray. And Ed is jumping around and pirouetting and, you know, leaping. And, and somebody notices, they're like, hey, isn't that Ed? I've never seen Ed any higher than this. I think that's Ed. No, did you see? And people start talking and there's people start, you know, hey, wait a minute. And, and this crowd and this commotion and this energy, they all gather around Ed who's hanging on to Peter and John. And so it says Peter does what apparently Peter does. He sees a crowd, so he just starts preaching. He assumes anytime there's a crowd there, they're for him. And they, you know, they want to hear him preach. So he starts to preach. And he's like, he starts preaching Jesus. He says, this guy, in fact, Jesus Christ healed this man. Jesus. And this is kind of the, this is, this is Peter's whole, you know, kind of stick in a, in a nutshell. Here's how Peter preaches. Oh yeah, God worked a miracle. Oh, Jesus did it. Have you heard of Jesus? Does it sound familiar? Well, sure it does because you killed him. Okay, so you know, remember he was here, he worked miracles and you, you killed him. You had him crucified. And, uh, but here's the good news. God's bigger than you are and God raised him from the dead. And even though you made a huge mistake, and you should feel bad about that. God raised him from the dead. And the religious leaders, meanwhile, they're kind of over in the temple area having their meeting. And somebody comes and says, oh, you're not going to believe it. Peter and John showed up and they healed Ed. And Ed's all dancing around and we can't stop. And there's a huge crowd and people are coming to Christ. In fact, a couple thousand people come to Christ in that situation. The religious leaders freak out because, of course, he loves to blame them for the, for the death of Jesus. So they send a group over. They arrest Peter and John mid-sermon. doesn't stop a couple thousand people from giving their life to Christ though. They take him, they throw him in prison. They're like, we'll just leave him there overnight, let him stew a little bit, and you know, kind of show him this is what you're going to get when you mess with us. So they're in prison overnight, and we're going to pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 7. It says now, um, they had Peter and John brought before them, that's the leaders the next morning. Now just context, these are the guys who had the authority and had the power when Jesus was brought before them to condemn him to death. Just little background. So they're, they're pretty powerful. They're pretty connected. So they had Peter and John brought before them and they began to question them. They said, by what power or what name did you do this? And P- 
Peter preaches. And it's the same old thing. He says, if you read the text, well, it, was, it wasn't us, it was Jesus. It was Jesus. Jesus healed this man. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, of course it does, because you killed him, all right? You know, so it's just like he keeps doing this. Well, you had him put to death, and here's the good news. God raised him from the dead. Awkward moment for you, but good moment for, you know, humanity. And then he says, and, and here's something you should know. In verse 12, salvation is found in no one else. Well, here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, you knew Jesus as a guy who was raised in Nazareth, who traveled around the Judean countryside. You recognized him as a low, as kind of a local um, pain in the neck, a kind of a, a, a local problem. And here's what you need to know. When he died on the cross, you thought you'd gotten rid of a local political, religious problem. But when God raised him from the dead, that has global implications. Not just for Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria. It has, because God is global. And when God raises somebody from the dead, that has global implications. Now again, you know, here's Peter, okay? He still smells like jail because he just got out for preaching Jesus as the only way. And he's standing in front of a group of people who could have him condemned and put to death. And in fact, that's kind of what they'd been doing. But the religious leaders are the ones who have the problem, not Peter. They have a problem for two reasons. First of all, they're dealing with Peter and John, which you have to understand, these are uneducated fishermen from, from Podunkville, okay? So like, and I don't mean to be, if, if you're really into fishing, I don't mean this in an offensive way, okay? But back then, if you were a fisherman, you were an uneducated kind of, you know, that's just what you were. In fact, in verse 13, it says this now, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that they were unschooled, that they were ordinary. They didn't go to Bible college. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't go to graduate school. They didn't have a college degree. They weren't from the right place or the right family. They weren't scholastic kind of people. They were, they were fishermen. And it says when they saw these unschooled ordinary men, they were, they were astonished. That means they were beside themselves. They had no explanation for what they were seeing. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Because by the way, people felt the same way about Jesus. They were astonished at this man and the way he spoke with authority. Here are these uneducated, unschooled fishermen speaking with boldness and confidence and clarity and going toe to toe with ultra educated men who were politically connected. And it looked like they weren't even afraid and so that's a little kind of disconcerting for the religious. Of course, the second problem they had was that there was a bona fide miracle in their midst. And the news was, was out. In verse 14, I love it, it says, but since, they could not, or, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So here's the problem. They're, they're going toe-to-toe with, with Peter and John, and they, they want to shut them up. But there's a guy standing in the corner who's kind of, Going like this. He probably hasn't sat in 24 hours. It's his new occupation. He's a stander. He loves it, you know. And most of us look for reasons to sit down. He's just looking for reasons to stand up. So he's kind of standing there in the corner, you know. He's kind of excited. And, and there, what can you do? What can you do when a guy who for 40 years, he's never walked in his whole life, and suddenly, boom, he's a stander. There he is. He's a jumper. He's a, you know, he's kind of doing, what can they do? 
So they say, what are we going to do with these men, you know? Um, everybody living in Jerusalem knows that they have done an outstanding miracle. They didn't just do a miracle. By the way, they did an outstanding miracle. And we can't deny it because everybody knows this guy. And everybody knows he used to be lame, and now he's, he's unlame, you know? Just, just look at him. And so what are they going to do? Now, here's what I love about the text. These educated, connected men do something so illogical. It, it really defies explanation. Here's what the leaders decide to do. What would you do if you were standing in the presence of a bona fide miracle and when you asked the people who worked it, how did you do it? And they said, what well, was Jesus who did it through us? What would you do? Well, here's what these guys do in verse 17. But to stop this thing from spreading, right, because you can't have that, you know, you wouldn't want that, any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. That's the name of Jesus. So they tell Peter and John, well, this seems like the logical thing to do. <laughs> Here's a guy who's been, who's been healed. We certainly don't want you talking about that. So we're going to let you go, but you need to keep your mouth shut. No more talking about Jesus. No more talking to don't, no more blaming us for the crucifixion and we don't want to hear any more of the R word. We don't want to hear resurrection anymore and, and, and we'll let you go but stop blaming us. Just like let it go already. Get some counseling and, and move on, you know? And then I love what happens next but Peter and John replied and this is so great. Here's what they said. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. So here, Here's a highly offensive statement. Okay, here's basically what they're saying. Peter and John look at the religious leaders and say, see, okay, here's our problem. We can listen to you or we can listen to God. Now, these are men who think they speak for God. They're absolutely certain they represent God. They speak for God. They're friends of God. They're in God's plan. So, I mean, you can imagine, how would you react when somebody looks at you and says, oh, see, this is tough because we can listen to you or we can listen to God. Let's see. You, God, you, God. All right, first of all, it's highly, highly offensive. And, you know, so they're just like, you know, Peter says, well, look, uh, you guys are going to, you do what you have to do and we'll do what we have to do. And the disciples are released. They go back to the church and I'm sure everybody breathes a sigh of relief and so glad that they're back. And, you know, it kind of made me think like, what would we do today? What would we do if we had a couple of, you know, religious leaders, a couple of church leaders and, and we were living in an antagonistic kind of, you know, society and um, politically connected people decided to have them, our, a couple of our leaders arrested and they just threw them in prison and, you know, we didn't know how it was going to turn out and then, and then they decided to let them go. We're going to let you go, but you just got to tone it down and imagine the leaders come back to the church and like, well, they let us go, but, you know, they said if this continues, it, it's not going to end well. What would the church do? Would we pray? We, you know, if we prayed, what would we pray for? You know, would we pray for revenge? Uh, would we pray for a hedge of protection? You know, isn't that what Christians pray? God, give us an arbavita of protection around our leaders, a, a boxwood of protection so, you know, Satan can't get through that because everyone knows he can't, get through, he can't get through evergreen. And so protect our, I don't know, it's just a Christian thing. It's protect our leaders and give us a hedge of protection and, you know, a dome of protection. And, and, or, or we might, you know, we might hire security. We might get a fleet of black Escalades with the blacked out windows for the pastors and tell them you can't travel together at any time and, you know, we're going to keep you apart and that whole, that whole thing. Or maybe we might do the more obvious thing. 
maybe we might sit down and say, you know what, guys, tell our leaders, we love you and you mean a lot to us, but you've got to tone it down, okay? Don't go out there just creating problems. I'm sure God doesn't want you to just go out into an antagonistic society and start talking about Jesus. You know it's going to upset them. You know they're going to get worked up. So just, I mean, so just don't do it. Just kind of lay low for a while and, you know, don't use the R word because it gets them all worked up when you talk about the resurrection. And John, don't you do a series on love? People love that. Why don't you do that for a while? Do a series on love. That won't cause any problems. And then when things calm down, you know, you can go back to being your good old offensive self. But that's not how they pray. Notice in verse 24, notice how they pray. So in verse 24, it says this. Now, when they heard this, the report from Peter and John, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They prayed. What did they pray? Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and, and everything in them. So they pray to God. They call him, they call him Sovereign Lord. I love that. So in, in other words, this, I learned years ago, this, the, the, word, the term sovereign, I always think of it as it means large and in charge. That's God. He's large and in charge. He's all powerful. Sovereign means um, to be um, independent of all other external influences. It means that you can make decisions on your own and do whatever you want to do. God is independent of of all other forces and he can do whatever he determines to do. So they say, God, you're sovereign. God, you are, you're the creator. You made the heavens and the earth and everything. We need to remember who we're talking to when we pray. God doesn't need us to remind him who he is, but we need to remember who he is. We are praying to the sovereign creator of all things. He's in charge. Who's calling the shots? God. Is he in charge of the Jewish leaders? Yeah. Is he in charge of the things that come in opposition to the gospel? Yes. Is he in charge of the things that come against you and I? Yes, he is. And it's important for us to remember that. And then they they go on and they they quote some Old Testament. They're kind of getting theological here with God. And in fact, they're literally quoting God back to God. So they say to him, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. When David said, years, years and years ago, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then they kind of bring it into context. They say, Father, we, we read that for years, didn't know what that mean, means, but now we understand what it meant. And they explained it. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They, they just said, you know what, God, you always knew this was going to happen. You knew that when your son came that people were going to conspire against him. You knew all that. Nothing takes you by surprise. And then in verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They believed that God was in control, even when things kind of looked out of hand. They, they said, you know what, God, we realized that you oversaw the crucifixion and the life of Jesus. The plan of the leaders was to humiliate him, but your plan was to glorify him. Their plan was to shut him up. Your plan was to take his, his atonement global so that everyone would have the opportunity to hear about Jesus and have new life in Jesus Christ. And then the disciples get to ask him for two things. Pretty quick, pretty much to the point. But the first thing they ask for is, they ask for boldness. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I find that kind of funny. When it, because I'm thinking, but don't they have that covered? It seems like they're bold. It seems like 
That's why they were in trouble in the first place, because they were bold. In verse 29, they prayed this. Now, Lord, consider the, their threats. And, and, and here's where it gets down to it. And enable your servants. That's him. Enable your servants to speak your word with great what? Right, with great, yeah, I know, with great boldness. They're like, come on, God. We need some boldness. Yeah, we, we, we want to get out. Now, again, I think this is funny. I'm like, but isn't that what got them in trouble? Aren't they already bold? I mean, they, they, they stand out in a crowd of people where they know the religious leaders are, and they're, they keep saying the word crucifixion and keep preaching the R word, and they know it's going to happen. And then when it happens, and when they get, you know, they stand up for the leaders, they do it again. And then when leaders say, don't do it anymore, they're like, well, whatever. You do what you have to do. We, you know, we'll do what we have to do. And it, I read it, and I'm like, I don't know. I think they have boldness covered, it seems like. But let me ask you this. How, how often do you pray for boldness in proclaiming God in your world? Now, I'm not asking how often do you pray for unbelievers because you probably do that every day, right? Um, you, pray, you probably pray for the unbelievers in your family, in your neighborhood, where you work, where you go to school. But that's not really what they're doing here. What, what they have in mind is that God's going to answer the prayer through them, right? So they're not praying, well, God, I, you know, we have a neighbor and we really love them. And so we're praying that you'll bring somebody into the neighborhood who will share Christ with them. That's not what they're praying. They're praying, God, use me. God, make me bold. God, we got, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. We're going to have some family members around the table. Some of them don't know you. <sighs> use me. Use me. I got to go to work tomorrow. Father, you know some of the people there. I got to go to school. You know what they're like in geometry. They don't like you. God, give me boldness. Don't give the teacher boldness. Don't give that other student boldness. Give me boldness. I want to have boldness. Now, he's not saying that we should be, you know, praying that God will help us speak with weirdness. Okay, you know, he's not saying, yeah, go to work tomorrow, stand up on your desk and start shouting Jesus and then security comes and takes you away and takes your key card. And I, okay, but what he's saying is, in the context, in the relationships that you have, would you be willing to speak the truth of Jesus with boldness? And, and again, I think one of the big obstacles for us is we often think that, that when it comes to speaking about Jesus, it means that we, we have to be able to have a discussion that will win. We may get into debate and we'll have to win it. And, and that's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying, you know, give us boldness to go debate people and win. Give us boldness to get in arguments with, with, with secular atheists who have all sorts of great arguments and win. No, no, he's just saying, speak with boldness. Your job is not to win people to Christ. Your job is not to win debates and win arguments. Your job is just to say what God once said. And so they pray. God, just give us boldness. We could use some boldness. And the second thing they pray and, you know, this is probably the, even the more weird part for us, is they pray for power. They pray for power. You ever pray for power? Notice what it says here. They say to God, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do you ever pray for that? You're probably like, no, I don't go to one of those churches. We don't pray for, we don't pray for that kind of stuff. Now, what were they asking for here? So what they're, what they're really saying is, God, we, here's what we know. We know that when we go out there and we share you, we share your son with people, 
We don't have the ability to bring people to a place of faith. We don't have the ability to destroy every argument in such a way that people just fall down and say, I surrender myself to Jesus because of your, you know, your amazing personality. It's so sparkling and I just, you know, and you win every debate and, you know, that's not what they're, that's not what they're, they're just saying, God, you're the only one who can save. You're the only one. And we know that you want to save and we know that Jesus came and died to save and we want to see people saved. So we need you. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission in our home, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our world. We can't do it without you. So Father, we need you at school, at work, at home. We need you to work in such a way that people will say, hey, isn't that Ed? And he doesn't walk, does he? You know, God, whatever your version of that is in our life, that's what we need. We need you to work. What if you prayed that version, your, your version of that prayer in your life? What if you were to pray? If you were to take all the stuff you pray for, keep praying for all that, but just add to your daily prayer. What if you were to pray, God, I, I pray that you would enable me to speak with boldness. I got to go to school tomorrow. I got to go home today. I got to go to work tomorrow. I got to wherever. I got to my neighborhood. Father, would you enable me to speak with boldness, and would you stretch out your hand and work? Now, um, I've been praying that prayer, and I don't get real specific about the last part. I've just been praying this. God, I pray that you would give me boldness to speak to Jesus, to speak about Jesus with the people in my world. Give me boldness to do that, and I pray that you would stretch out your hand and do whatever you want to do in my life. Because chances are the things you want to do are not the things I would think of anyways. So would you do those two things in my life? Would you work among, amongst my friends, amongst my relatives, amongst all my Facebook friends who they've given up on you, they've given up on Jesus, they've been burned by religion, they've been burned by the church, they've been burned by Christians and they don't want to have anything to do with it anymore and they're skeptical and they're reading stuff on Facebook and they don't believe it. But God, would you, would you stretch out your hand and work in such a way that it would be very, very difficult for them to continue to be like that? Would you show yourself to be real among your people. You see, when I read the book of Acts, I really believe that the purpose of miracles in, in the book of Acts were not for the sake of, of the church. It, it, the miracle that Peter and John worked was not for their sake. I don't even think primarily it was for the sake of the guy who was lame. I don't. I think it was a good day for him, right? It was a good day, but, but I think what God was really doing was using that situation to reach a much larger audience. And in the same way, when we would pray for God today to make us bold and to stretch out his hand, right? We're not praying, God, I just need a miracle fix today. I'm bored, you know? That's not what this is about. And we don't even, I, necessarily, I don't even see us needing to pray that in, in this context because this isn't where we need it, right? Where we, we believe but we, what we need it is outside of these walls when we go into our homes and our neighborhoods and the places where we work and the people we spend time with to say, God, would you go with us in power and show yourself in whatever way you would see fit to show that you are real and that you still say, not for my, I don't need it, but for the sake of the mission. And I tried to imagine what would it look like if a church like Gateway, if every one of us prayed that prayer every day. God, enable me 
to speak your word with boldness and stretch out your hand. And I wouldn't presume, God, to tell you how you would do that. When you would do that, just do what you want. I'm just telling you. I'm praying for it. I'm asking for it. Because I believe that God answers prayer. And I love the way this section ends. It says, and after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. Okay, see, and I don't really particularly like that because I grew up in Southern California. I would prefer God works in another way. Um, and, but it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Bold. They spoke the word of God boldly. See, I believe that God wants us to do something that isn't just about us as a church. Something that's, that's bigger than us. God wants to use us to reach the world around us for Christ, to fulfill the mission. And I think that means we need boldness. And in it, we need God's power. And this isn't just a, this is not a prayer for a struggling church, right? Because this church that prayed this prayer, they're not struggling. They're bold, right? They're proclaiming the word. And if, I just think if they needed it, and if they prayed for it, we, sh- we, we probably need it. And we should probably pray for it as well. So, here's the application for you. I wouldn't presume to tell you how to pray, but I would encourage you to do something like I've been doing, and that is I've been praying daily. In fact, more than daily. God, give me boldness to speak about Jesus and stretch out your hand in my life to do whatever you want to do to show people that you are real and that you are save. Let's pray together.